everyone. This is Joe Calhoun, president of Alhambra Investments, and I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of the Bi-Weekly Economic Review. I started writing the review several years ago, and it is available on our blog at alhambrapartners.com and on any number of websites who steal it and repost it without our permission. Every two weeks, I take the time to think about the economy for a while, but not for too long. Peter Lynch, one of the greatest investors of all time, once said that if you spend 13 minutes analyzing economic data, you've wasted 10 minutes. I don't know if that still applies exactly in today's world that is so dominated by central banks, but I do think most investors spend way too much time worrying about the day-to-day economic data. Our goal with these podcasts is to cut through the noise and concentrate on what's really important. For investors, the main reason to monitor the economy is to try and identify turning points. The biggest losses in the stock market are associated with the onset of recession, and the biggest gains are often at the beginning of a recovery. If we can identify these points in advance, or even just a little after, that's some very valuable information to have. After reading way more economic research than any person ought to be subjected to, I have come to the conclusion that there are a limited number, a very limited number of indicators that are useful in this regard. In these bi-weekly reviews, we look mainly at three indicators. The yield curve, which is the difference between long-term and short-term interest rates, and usually we're looking at treasuries in that case. Credit spreads, which is the difference between junk bond and treasury bond yields. And the value of the U.S. dollar measured in a variety of ways. We'll also look at some of the high-frequency economic reports, the ones that come out on a weekly basis, but not in a lot of detail. Most of these reports are just so much noise, but sometimes we can glean some important nuances, something that will give us an advantage in the markets. I will also, since I can't really help myself, provide a little commentary along with the raw data, my take on economic policy, and all the ways the politicians who make it are doing their best to screw things up. Again, welcome, and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoy talking. Welcome to Alhambra Investments Bi-Weekly Economic Review for mid-December 2017. I've titled this segment, Animal Spirits Haunt the Market, because things are getting a little crazy out there right now. But let's take a look at the data. Let's see what's going on. So, economic data over the last two weeks continued the better-than-expected trend that we've been on before. Some of the data was quite good, and it makes me wonder if maybe, just maybe, we're finally ready to break out of the economic doldrums that we've been in since 2013. Is it possible that all that new normal, secular stagnation stuff was just nothing more than a lack of animal spirits? Is it possible that the mere anticipation of tax cuts was sufficient to break us out of the 2% growth paradigm that we've been stuck in? Or are there other factors that have us on the precipice of a third consecutive quarter of 3% plus growth? It's easy to find the positives in the economic data these days. Retail sales surged last month, now up nearly 6% year over year. That's a good number, uh, no matter what expansion you're talking about. Look, for this expansion, it's really good. Past expansions, not quite as good, but it's still a pretty good number. On the wholesale side, wholesale sales are up 8%. Inventories are improving relative to sales. Uh, Inventory to sales ratios are falling and have been falling for a while, but they are still elevated. Imports and exports are up 7% and 5.6% respectively. Factory orders are rising at about a 4% clip. Even productivity, which has been really the, the biggest problem with this economy over the last decade or so, was up 3% last quarter. And the Fed's worries about inflation also seem reasonable, considering that the CPI report and the PPI report we got showed that inflation was above their target. 
yeah, I understand that that's not the inflation measure that they use. They use the PCE deflator. Uh, but certainly CPI over 2% year over year has got to make them a little bit nervous. Import and export prices are actually up even more than that, up 3% year over year. Uh, actually, I think it's 3.1%, so a little over 3%. And of course, the Fed, since Janet Yellen has been in charge, has concentrated almost exclusively on the unemployment rate, thinking that the Phillips curve still works, although I'm not sure where exactly they get that confidence, because it hasn't worked for a very long time. Uh, but with unemployment rate down to 4.1%, you can certainly see why the, the Phillips curve disciples over at, uh, over at uh, the Fed would start to get a little bit antsy. But that is just a snapshot, a particular moment in time, and some of this recent surge is certainly due to recovery spending after the two big hurricanes we had in September. It's impossible to gauge the size of the impact, yet there's no doubt that the insurance money is flowing into, into the affected areas and being spent. Look, I see it in my own neighborhood. There are people here in my neighborhood who were damaged. Their house was damaged. It's being repaired. Uh, some, you know, uh, we just actually, my wife and I just took a trip down to the Keys, took a drive down to the Keys, Florida Keys, where I think the damage was a little bit more. You can see things going on, things being rebuilt, uh, lots being cleared. There's lots of money flowing into these areas and it's having an impact. So all this stuff shows up in higher sales today, but it's not likely to be repeated soon. At least God forbid, I hope not. Uh, and it will start to taper off soon. Uh, so when you look at those inventory to sales ratios, you got to think about the numerator and the denominator. It's, it's inventory to sales. And that sales number has probably been, uh, been distorted a little bit by this hurricane recovery spending. And productivity, yeah, productivity was up 3% last quarter. But if you look at it longer term, the year-over-year -year rate is still only 1.5%. You haven't broken the downtrend on this productivity thing yet. Inflation? Yeah, okay, CPI, PPI up a little bit. That's mostly just a fluctuation of oil prices. Uh, you know, unit labor costs, which also came out in the productivity report, down 0.7% year over year. Capacity utilization is only at 77.1%. There is no constraint on the supply side of the economy, either domestically or globally. And the demand side is still shackled by too much debt. Headline inflation is really just mostly driven by those fluctuating oil prices, and the core, if you take out uh, food and energy, is pretty darn tame. It might be a, 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 a problem someday, but inflation right now is just not a problem. But the questions I asked at the top of this thing are not easy ones to answer. Uh, indeed, they may be impossible to answer, at least until we have the space of time to look back on this period and try to make some definitive observations about what's really going on. But Quite frankly, you can't even count on that. I mean, think about it. Economists are still arguing about the Great Depression nearly 90 years after the fact. Observing the economic landscape and speculating about the causes and effects of policy is not a process with a great track record. You can slice and dice the data any way you want to. You can psychoanalyze the entire planet, and you still can't predict the future. The Fed, which has a nearly unlimited budget for economic analysis, also has a track record that makes astrologers and weathermen look pretty darn good. So it's not a matter of if I just analyze this enough, I put enough data together. If I just do enough, I just spend enough, hire enough economists that I can figure this out, it doesn't work that way. <clears throat> of course, we at Alhambra, we can't even begin to match the Fed's budget for economic forecasting, so we don't usually try uh, to predict the future. We spend most of our time, time just trying to figure out the present. You know, we do indulge our... our urges occasionally to speculate about the effects of economic policy, but we usually only do it in a very general way. So, for instance, we don't think that this tax bill that's about to be passed today is going to have 
a big impact on economic growth. And because, that's because most of it is, is, is concentrated on the corporate side. Look, there were some changes that needed to be made on the corporate side, and I, I don't think there's any problem with what, what, what they're doing here and taking that rate down to 21% and closing some loopholes and so forth. I think it's a fair way to do things. If you closed all the loopholes and make everybody pay the statutory rate, I'd be happy with that. Let every company and every, every industry pay the same rate. I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't think the government should be picking and choosing winners and, and, hey, this company or this industry should pay this tax rate, and this industry over here that we don't like should pay a higher tax rate. I don't think that's right. But look, we didn't go into some big deep dive into the details on this bill because, quite frankly, the thing is enormous. I don't think anybody's read the whole thing. Probably the only people that might find it interesting are CPAs and tax lawyers. Um, but our observation is a little more general. The corporate profits and corporate margins, profit margins are near already near all-time highs. And companies are still choosing to pay dividends and buy back stock and make acquisitions at really, really high prices. I don't know if you guys saw this, but there were a lot of acquisitions announced on Monday, especially in the food industry. Prices in private equity are as high as they've ever been. Anyway, the point is that these companies, even though they have uh, plenty of cash on hand, they're not doing capital investments. That's not what they're doing. So this bill doesn't really relieve any constraint on the economy or on these companies. The companies already have cash, and they've already chosen not to make these investments. They're doing these other things instead. They're buying back stock. They're paying dividends. They're buying other companies, and they're not making capital investments. Cutting their corporate tax rate and giving them a little bit more money, I just don't see where that's really going to relieve anything and, and make them suddenly want to make investments. The bottom line is they got to have a good reason to make the investment. they got to see a return on the investment. And yeah, taxes help some, but it's only a small piece of the puzzle. But economies are complex and they're impossible to predict precisely because they are human. They're imbued with all the frailties associated with our species. And what I don't know, and what's important, obviously, is how individuals are going to respond to this bill. If companies use the extra cash flow to pay more dividends and buy back more stock, that doesn't mean it's a failure. Contrary, by the way, to the argument from the other side of the aisle, uh, it doesn't mean it's a failure. Uh, all it means is that the company that, that, that received this extra cash doesn't have a good use for it except to pay out to dividends. Look, we shouldn't complain about that. What matters here is if the company pays more dividends, what do the individuals or the entities, pension funds, whatever, that receive these extra dividends, what do they do with the money? If they buy back stock, if the company buys back stock, somebody has to sell them that stock. What do those people do with the money? Look, in fact, it may be very positive, in fact, that the large companies who are going to get this big tax cut are not going to invest this money, that they're going to pay it out to their shareholders because maybe the shareholders will do something innovative with it. Innovation is not something that generally happens at big multi multinational corporations. It happens at small new companies, startups. It happens because people make investments in new things. So what I'm saying is you have to look beyond that first order effect. Just the fact that the companies pay dividends or buy back stock doesn't mean that this thing has failed. The limiting factor in the economy is not that companies are lacking cash to make these investments. That's not the limiting factor. The limiting factor is that individuals, whether they're CEOs or whether they're shareholders, they're the ones that are not willing to make these investments in America at this point, these capital investments. Now, if that changes for the better, then so will economic growth. And my biggest problem with this tax bill is it doesn't directly address that underlying problem. It, it does direct, uh, address it in an indirect way, but it doesn't address it directly. But look, it may not matter. Look, the animal spirits I talked about at the top, it may be that those animal spirits that are stirring, and it's, it's kind of obvious looking at markets that they are, maybe that's going to change that dynamic. 
There's no doubt that sentiment toward the economy has improved markedly. The NFIB Small Business Optimism Index just made a new high, and consumer sentiment has obviously improved quite a bit as well. Now, how much of that is due to just anticipation of lower taxes? I, I, I don't know. It may be that the more important changes under the Trump administration have been in the regulatory arena. It's interesting, the NFIB surveys have shown that regulation is actually the biggest complaint of small business during the Obama administration. And to the extent that the Trump administration has maybe alleviated, uh, relieved some of this regulatory burden may be a positive. And maybe that's why uh, we're seeing so much optimism at the, at the small business level. So maybe that sentiment change is about that. And the tax reform bill is just a bonus. But I'm not going to try to predict that. We don't do economic analysis by anecdote guessing or trying to guess at the impact of monetary or fiscal policy. We know we can't predict the future, and neither can economists. Economists, in fact, can't even agree on how to analyze the past, much less the present or the future. So rather than rely on economists and their models, we rely on markets. They aren't perfect, but they do embody the wisdom of crowds and probably offer the best view of the future we can hope to get. Those who see the tax bill as a big positive point to the stock market as confirmation of their views, and they almost universally predict a surge in capital, will, a surge of capital will come flowing back to the U.S. to invest here in the wake of these lower corporate tax rates. And I suppose that could be true, but there are some problems with this view. First of all, it isn't just like it isn't just that U.S. stocks are up this year. In fact, the U.S. stock market is up quite a bit less. It, it, it's certainly not the leader. Uh, EFA index, which is just a, a broad international index, is up 25% this year. Emerging markets up 35%. Asia X Japan is up 36%. Europe up 31%. Latin America up 27%, almost 28%, while the S&P is up about 21 And even Japan, which everybody still thinks is a basket case, is up 209 as of yesterday. So even Japan uh, is doing just as well as the United States. Now, I suppose you could argue that U.S. tax reform is going to be a big positive for the entire global economy, and I think there's some truth to that in that if the U.S. does better, the rest of the world is going to do better too. <clears throat> but I'm not sure you can really uh, put all those stock market gains uh, and lay those at the feet of what's going on just with tax reform. Second, if markets were anticipating a rush of capital back to the U.S., you would expect the dollar to look a little bit better. Uh, instead, it's, the dollar index is down 10% this year or over the last year anyway, since the election. Uh, and it's it, it has stopped falling. You know, It started to stabilize a few months ago back in, I guess it was in the fall. And, and it has stabilized some, but it's not rallying. And as we've gotten more and more closer and closer to passing this tax reform bill, the dollar hasn't gone up. And so if, if the market was anticipating uh, this big surge of capital coming back here, then I think the dollar would have done something a little bit better than what it has. But also, by the way, this, this lack of dollar uh, appreciation would also seem to refute this idea that I see all the time that, hey, European uh, interest rates being so low, in fact, negative in some cases, that's what's holding down U.S. interest rates. And so, therefore, you can't watch U.S. interest rates and get a good clue as to what's going to happen with the economy. I don't buy that. Look, if Europeans were buying U.S. bonds, uh, they would have to buy dollars to do so. Now, somebody told me, oh, well, they're hedging. Really? So what's going on here is that you're telling me that Europeans are buying U.S. bonds, they're hedging away all the currency risk, and they're still getting a higher yield than they would get just buying European bonds? I'm not sure I really buy that. That just does not make sense to me. The markets don't work that way. They're not that inefficient. So I don't know that I really buy that. And by the way, I find it hard to believe that they're holding down U.S. interest rates, but also at the same time buying all these junk bonds in Europe at a, at a, at a yield that's less than the U.S. Treasury. 
seems to me that uh, you're, you're kind of, if you're making that argument, you're making the argument that Europeans have all this capital in the world and nothing to do with it. Uh, they're just buying bonds around the globe and holding down these interest rates. Uh, it just seems a little fanciful to me. Anyway, uh, look, when we look at these, uh, it, it, we try to try to look at what's going on with, with the economy. We look at bond markets. And the bond markets offer the greatest evidence that this tax bill uh, is not going to create some great uh, growth surge. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is basically unchanged this year. And by the way, it took a big surge in yields yesterday to get back to unchanged. Uh, really, 10-year rate was was lower for almost the entire year until just very recently. So I suppose it's possible that the bond market has just been ignoring all this stuff with the tax bill and decided yesterday, well, this thing's going to pass. I better I better sell my bonds. Again, I, I, the market really doesn't work that way. It starts to anticipate a long time before that. But Bottom line is that there's no growth surge uh, uh, evident in the bond market, in the nominal bond market. And also, also obviously, you got to look at the yield curve. Yield curve is the best indicator of future growth. And the fact is that it's been flattening all year long. It hasn't even really had a blip up except for the last couple of days. You've been just a steady, steady flattening all year long as the short end starts to anticipate more rate hikes. And the long end says, yeah, you know, you probably ought not be doing that. Uh, and I guess that you know that's a good way to put it too. I think there's a, a kind of a a mismatch here between the Fed's expectations regarding growth and the markets. And so the Fed is very positive; they want to hike rates. They're raising short-term rates, and they're positive about the economy, and maybe a little concerned about inflation. And the long end of the curve, which is really just driven by the market, is saying no growth and inflation really aren't a problem. Look, this is what Alan Greenspan dubbed the conundrum back in the in the last cycle. You know, the Fed was hiking rates on the short end, and the long end wasn't following suit. And Alan Greenspan dubbed this the conundrum. And what it really meant was, hey, Alan Greenspan thought that he was right and the market was wrong. Yeah, it didn't work out that way, and the market turned out to be right. I don't think I would bet against a similar outcome this time around either. You know, we can also look at tip yields. Let's look at real yields, uh, in, you know, nominal yields minus the inflation rate. And tips tell us the same story. Look, tips have been trading in a range, in a very narrow range, really since 2013. And particularly over the last year, the range has been really, really narrow. And it's just not showing any evidence whatsoever that growth expectations are rising in the long term. Now, again, you do see a rise in the short end of the curve uh, for tips yields. But again, it's driven by the Fed. So when we look at the yield curve, a real yield curve, the 10-year tip minus the 5-year tip yield, we actually get an even flatter curve than we get with the nominal one. Here, the difference is only six basis points. And I would venture to say that the real yield curve is probably more important than the nominal curve anyway. And the bottom line is that bond markets just are not in agreement with stocks on future growth. And bonds, by the way, are generally the more accurate in these predictions, which is where you get the old Wall Street saying that uh, the, the stock market has predict predicted nine of the last five recessions. And we can update that for modern times and say that, you know, the stock market has predicted three booms since the turn of the century. Stocks were very highly priced in 2000. Stocks were just as highly priced in 2007. And they're even higher priced now. Well, the fact is that the stock market has predicted these three booms. And so far, it's 0 for 2. Uh, and I would venture to say it's probably going to end up being 0 for 3. There's no boom in our future right now. At least that's what the bond market's telling us. But... Look, I, I don't want to dismiss this entirely. There are some other signs of growth in the market, some emerging signs. Uh, gold, for instance, has been soft recently, an indication of improving growth expectations. Look, people don't put, uh, don't put their capital in gold or park their capital in gold when they have a better place to put it. 
so the fact that gold is falling says that they're not buying gold. Well, maybe they're putting it in something more productive. Uh, on the other hand, quite frankly, it may just be that people that buy gold or the, the normal buyers of gold are out buying Bitcoin because uh, apparently that is uh, quite the thing with with the apocalypse crowd, the uh, long bottled water crowd. Anyway, look, not only that, if you look at it over the last year, gold's up 11%. So again, not exactly a great uh, indication of growth expectations. Um, we do see, though, too, uh, a, a rise in the copper to gold ratio. That's another uh, thing that we look at. Uh, to judge growth expectations in the market. When copper is rising faster than gold, look, commodities generally are going to rise if the dollar is falling, which has been the case for the last year. <clears throat> but if copper is rising faster than gold, then people are obviously have a, a greater demand for copper, which is a more economically sensitive metal than gold. So those expectations are up this year. And that's also driven, by the way, uh, uh, bond yields. Bond yields tend to be highly correlated with this copper to gold ratio. Now, right now, that copper to gold ratio is, is approaching the peak that we set back in October. We'll see if it breaks out. Maybe it does. Maybe these growth expectations continue to grow. But at least for now, that is not the case. Another area we watch for clues about future growth is credit spreads. Uh, credit spreads is just the difference between junk bond yields and a treasury yield. And really what this is is a market sentiment indicator. It's, uh, it, it tells you when you have narrow spreads, there's not much difference between the two rates, that there's risk, that risk appetite is pretty high. Investors are not demanding a lot of yield protection uh, to buy these lower-rated bonds over treasuries. So like I said, it's a sentiment measure. Uh, and just like the consumer, uh, consumer sentiment and, and the NFIB surveys and, and all the other um, market sentiment surveys, which, by the way, uh, bulls are off the charts in most of these things. There are no bears left in this market. Uh, you know, credit spreads like those those consumer things. I always say, you know, people point to consumer sentiment. It's like, hey, consumer sentiment is great. Well, that's true, and it's always great right before it's not. Uh, you know, the, the consumer sentiment peaks really coincident with the economy. It's a coincident indicator. It's not a leading indicator. It peaks when the when the, when growth peaks. So the fact that it's high doesn't tell you anything yet. You got to see what it does in the future. But the point is that credit spreads are just another way of, of measuring sentiment. It's a market, a real-time measure. You don't have to wait for the conference board to do their survey. A credit spread start blowing out, and you know that people are getting worried and people are starting to sell risk assets. And that's a, a measure of their sentiment and their, their, their outlook for the economy and the markets. Look, there's, there's no way to predict the future course of the economy. Uh, there are no crystal balls. There's no tea leaves to read. Economic theory offers, uh, you know, maybe some insight, I suppose, but quite frankly, the models that are used by most economists just are not very accurate. And not only that, economists are, are, are tainted by their, their, their political affiliations. You know, it, it, it always amazes me. I mean, economists want to be seen as, and they want economics to be seen as this hard science. But the fact is that if your view is so skewed that by politics, that it's polar opposite of, of the people on the other side of the aisle, I don't see how you can say that's hard science. If, if, if Democrats' view of this bill is very negative, which it is, and our Republicans' view, a Republican economist's view of this measure is very positive, what does that say about economists? It just says that their politics is driving their analysis. It's not any, anything that's unbiased, put it that way. The only unbiased view of the future is offered by the market. It's the wisdom of crowds. <clears throat> right now, you can't deny that the data flow is improving, and stocks are responding positively to that, and they're positive, uh, responding positively to tax reform, I'm sure. But bond and currency markets offer a much more sober view of the future, 
it's not recession slap in the face sober, but it is a continuation of that sluggish 2% growth, new normal, secular stagnation, whatever you want to call it. It's a continuation of that trend. Sentiment, meanwhile, is quite the opposite of sober. Bitcoin guys are swinging from the chandelier at this party, and the volatility salesmen are passed out under the lampshade. It's not your father's bull market. There's some strange things going on out there. So how long does this party last? How long is it going to be so easy to make money in these markets? I, you know, I, I don't know. But if you're in this party, I think you probably ought to at least start looking for the door. You ought to at least have a good idea how you're going to get out. You need to have a plan. And so start looking for the door, uh, the exit to this party. It's right over there behind the ICO desk.